Welcome to Murder by Nature, where we discuss true crime, mysterious disappearances, and unsolved cases. I'm Jasmine Hernandez, your host. So, I don't know what happened the last three weeks, but we are blowing up. Like, we started with a good amount of people, and now we're getting, like, hundreds of people listening in every single, like, day. It is insane. It's crazy. Well, also... I was going to try and do YouTube today, and I recorded the video, and now I can't get it to post. So, here we are, (laughs) back to our audio version. I will get those kinks worked out, and it may be a few weeks before we can actually get YouTube going. It's a little bit more difficult than I anticipated, but we're, we're doing great with the audio, so we'll keep this rolling. And we have videos on TikTok that you're always able to go watch or follow us on our Instagram because I post all the videos there too. And then once we get YouTube situated and going, I think think we'll be good. We just need a few weeks on that. So with this series, we are going to be focusing on murders inspired by horror movies or movies that were inspired by the murders. This week, we're going to dive into one of my favorite movies and finding out that it was actually inspired by a true crime case. So we'll get into our references for today. We have grunge.com, box office mojo, real life villains, poor land, and true crime edition. Jeepers Creepers was a hit horror movie in 2001 that made over $59.2 million during its original release per Box Office Mojo. It was directed by Victor Selva, and it was the story of a brother and sister that were being stalked by a demonic flesh-eating creature nicknamed the Creeper. He embarked on an eating spree every 23 years, and it's hard to imagine that such an outlandish premiere could be on the base and inspired by real-life events. For everyone that didn't know, Jeepers Creepers has a twisted backstory, and where it came from is going to shock most. I'm certain the sun will shine. I don't care how the weather vane points. When the weather vane points too gloomy, it's got to be sunny to me when your eyes look into mine. Jeepers Where'd you get those creepers? Jeepers, creepers. Where'd you get those eyes? Because y'all get up. How'd they get so lit up? Because y'all get up. As Jeepers Creepers became more popular, who would have known the true murder that took place following the same events as the movie long before it was released? On Easter Sunday, April 15th, 1990, Driving through a long, lonely road outside the Coldwater, Michigan, Ray and Maria Thornton were out for a Sunday drive. It was their weekly ritual, a few hours on the back road in southern Michigan near the Indiana border to unwind without their children before the next week began. As Ray drove, he saw a large brown van approaching in the rearview mirror. Ray sped up, but the van sped past him in the wrong lane and continued down the road. Mary laughed and said, geez, they're in a rush. And as the two continued to drive down the road, they noticed something strange. 
The van was now pulled over by an old abandoned schoolhouse, and the driver was carrying a bloodied blanket. The Thorntons quickly realized that they accidentally stumbled upon something quite sinister, and to make matters worse, the suspicious driver spotted them. Dennis and Marilyn Dupoo were married for 17 years. Raising their children, two daughters and a son, Dennis was a property assessor and Marilyn was a cold water high school guidance counselor. That is a mouthful. Great tension started to grow within the marriage. And after he became withdrawn, he accused her of turning their children against them. She often told friends that she was unhappy and that she wanted a divorce. Dennis and Marilyn's relationship ended up crumbling over time. Dennis was very controlling and demanding. And furthermore, they had very different personalities. Marilyn was very active and involved within the community, and Dennis wasn't, and he didn't like the fact that she was. In 1989, after 18 years of marriage, Marilyn filed for divorce. She told her attorney that Dennis was trying to ruin her life and wouldn't let her make decisions on her own. He was trying to keep the marriage fully intact. He didn't want to get divorced, and he thought that he can just force her to do what he wanted. They're, they were together for so long, I think it just became a habit for him. However, even through all of that, their marriage was finalized in December of 1989. Dennis was granted bi-weekly visitation rights, but their children were often reluctant to go and spend time with him. He was also given access to the guest house, which he used as an office. However, it is believed that he used this as an excuse to maintain control over his family. Marilyn ended up changing the locks on the door, but he still managed to find a way to enter the house. So he had access to the guest house, but he would still come into the house and bother her and tell her what she needs to do. It became very toxic because even though they were fully divorced and he was only allowed to see the children biweekly, he felt like this was his home. This was his family and he was allowed to do what he wanted. On Easter Sunday, April 15th, 1990, Dennis arrives at the house to pick up two of their children. Their younger daughter, Julie, already refused to go with him. She didn't want to see him. She didn't want to be with him. When he tried to go inside, their son, Scott, was telling his dad he didn't want to go either. He wanted to stay with their mom. When Marilyn tried to talk to Dennis, he became angry and started yelling at her. He grabbed her and pushed her down the stairs. At the bottom of the staircase, he beat her repeatedly, even after the children pleaded with him to stop. Their oldest daughter, Jennifer, ran to the neighbor's house to call the police to come help. Dennis then carried a seriously injured, dazed Marilyn back up the stairs and to his van. Now, with the way that a lot of homes were built out in this time, what would happen is you would come in the driveway, enter the door, and there would be a stair, like a staircase. You'd enter and you'd be on the top level floor and like the kitchen and the living room, And everything would be underneath. And that's kind of what I'm envisioning their house to look like. That maybe like the living rooms up top are the bedrooms. And then down at the second floor, it was like the kitchen living room area that led out to the backyard. But it was a fancy house like that. So when I read that he beat her coming in and threw her to the bottom of the staircase, I initially thought, oh, they're in the top story. But as I read more articles, it's he was at the door and then he threw her down the stairs. So back to where we were. When he picked up Marilyn and took her back up the stairs to his van, he told the children that he was going to take her to the hospital. It was the last time that the children will see their mother alive. 
Four hours after Dennis left with Marilyn, one of their daughters called the police to report the assault and the planned hospital trip. When police arrived at the hospital, there is no record of them. There's nothing that they've been there, no check-in, nothing. And the search for Marilyn started. Now, if you remember the beginning of our story, the couple did stumble upon something sinister that would connect these two families together. As the couple continued to drive down the road and get away from what they just saw, Ray again saw the brown van approaching in his rearview mirror. Instead of immediately passing like before, the driver tailgated dangerously close for several minutes before the van again blasted around their car and sped down the road. Both still in shock, the Thorntons decided that they had to turn back to verify what they saw. Now, if you're any horror film fan, you can tell me exactly what's going to happen right now. Now, it's never a good idea to go back, especially when you saw something bloody coming out of the car and then being chased down. But the couple did turn around. The couple knew that they needed to go back to the van. They needed the license plate and they needed to alert the police. As they passed the van, a tall man wearing a white hat was standing at the back of the vehicle with the doors open. He was changing the license plates. They left the passenger door ajar and they were able to see into the interior and it was visibly covered with a large amount of blood. When the Thorntons saw Dennis by the school, he was disposing of a sheet that he used to transport Marilyn's dead body. The animal hole that he was trying to push the sheet down wasn't long enough. And when Ray and Mary went back to see what Dennis had been up to, they found it sticking out of the ground. Police and forensics arrived on the scene. The Michigan State Police and the Sheriff's Office have already began their manhunt for Dennis. Now, following the call from Jennifer, they were able to connect the two together. The area was taped off and nearby forensic teams found tri- found tire tracks, and a bowl of blood. That was a tongue tie for me. So he killed Marilyn, and then where he went, and you can kind of picture this if you've seen the movie, where he went was like that abandoned school or church in the movie, and there was like a hole coming out, and he was throwing things into that. Now, it is said that the threads that they found along everything linked to Dennis's truck and the blood was a match to Marilyn. The next day, Marilyn's body was discovered in the brush next to a quiet road halfway between the home and the schoolhouse. She had been shot in the back of her head by her husband. As the man had emerged, Dennis went on the run. He would end up sending several letters back to family and friends trying to justify why he killed her and why it was not his fault. He would send out 17 letters in total with various postmarks from across the eastern United States. Three months after Marilyn's murder, Dennis would send another letter. This time, it was a 13-page letter quoting verses from the Bible and consisted of more rambles. After the letters, the lead started to slow down, and the case started to grow cold. It remained cold for an entire year until Unsolved Mysteries aired the episode of Dennis and the crime that happened in March 1991. Nearly a year after the murder, on the night that it aired, Mary arrived at her home in Dallas, Texas. She was surprised to see her boyfriend's vehicle in the driveway, and as she opened the front door, she was 
confronted by Hank. He told her that he needed to drive home as his mother was very ill. He asked Mary to make him some sandwiches for the road while he packed up his belongings. Now, in reality, it is thought that Hank was just trying to keep her busy so she wouldn't be able to sit down and watch TV. And in that TV screen, she would have seen him staring back at her. Hank packed up his green 1984 Chevrolet van and gave his girlfriend a hug. Mary never saw that man again, but she would soon find out who he really was. Mary's friend was the one who called into the hotline, reporting her friend's boyfriend as Dennis. She gave the operator his license plate number and where they thought he was going, and just four hours later, Dennis was located. Louisiana state troopers were the first to spot the truck. They tried to stop the vehicle, but instead embarked on a high-speed chase that lasted 15 miles. Warren County Sheriff Paul Bartlett told his team to shoot out the truck's tires if they couldn't stop Dennis. And they succeeded. They hit both of the back wheels. Dennis managed to drive on the rims for about half a mile before the car eventually gave up and stopped. He shot at officers with his gun, with two going through the windshield and one through an open window. And then Dennis turned the gun and shot himself. Now, it is theory that Dennis shot himself and died the same exact night and that he was planning on doing it regardless. He was either going to go out by police or he was going to take himself out. It is said that he was on the run for so long, and then once he saw his picture on the TV, that he just knew this was it. This is, I'm going down. So, this is one of many cases that are built around one of these movies. And as a true crime fanatic, I am also a big horror fan. I love scary movies. And the one thing that connects One of my two hobbies is the fact that sometimes when people watch movies, they try and take that and build it out to be more. Now, as we go through this month, we are going to be focusing on those murders. And I felt like Jeepers Creepers was one that not a lot of people knew about because as the movie came out and the sequels and there was just one released, Jeepers Creepers Reborn but it's not in theaters. No one knew that the actual story of that murder was of one that happened in 1990. It's not something the producers or the director released, but as you learn and read about this murder, you learn that even the game that the couple was playing, the, if you remember in the movie, when they're driving, they make words out of license plates that is something that Ray and Mary were doing. It's a game that they did when they drove. There's just odd similarities to the movie and to the actual case. Now, as we go through this next month, we will be focusing on the Nightmare on Elm Street murders, the Halloween murders, the Scream murder, which I think everyone really knows. There's Hellraiser. There is so many different ones that I feel like need to be brought to light, not to be glorified, but to realize that even when you're watching a movie and you are watching this and it's like, oh, this is just imaginary. There may be a case that's built behind it. And that's something I think we need to really take a look into. I know one movie that just came out, Smile, 
a lot of people are saying that it does have a negative effect on you when you watch it. I'm a little crazy. I really want to watch it after knowing that because I want to see what they mean. But they say just not to watch it when you're in a dark space. And this month is known for all its spooky stuff. So my thoughts on this case, it was wild. It was wild. I feel like the dad was a very controlling father, a husband. And after so long of being in that relationship and the change in generations too, from when they first started getting together to where they were and that time in history, I think the mom was just fed up. She wanted something different. She didn't want to be controlled. She wanted to be her own person. And he didn't like that. So I think with the trauma of getting divorced, not having his house, his kids turning him away, it put him in an emotional state where he took her life. And I don't know if he planned it from what I was reading. It seems like it was spur of the moment that he didn't plan to come and kill her. That he just got so angry in the heat of the moment he did. It's not said if the kids grew up with their maternal or paternal. But I will say the one thing that did trick me as odd is even though he killed his wife on her find a grave on her obituary, he is labeled as her spouse. And I think that is so sad. And even on his, she's labeled as his wife. So that's one thing to think about. He was buried close to where she was, not super close, but within a few miles from where she is buried to this day. And these children, these three children that were in high school at the time of their parents' murder, had to grow up without them and grow up knowing that their dad killed their mom and then he killed himself. And he never, he never had to suffer the consequences of what he did to their mother. And that is just super sad. 